Wow. Um, I wasn't a Baptist preacher. I might cuss. That was that good. <clears throat> um, uh, okay, so, and even in the midst of that, John, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Um, in the midst of that, even, even in the midst of that, revealing to me something that's really obvious in this passage that we're looking at today that I had not noticed, even though it's very obvious and, um, and probably should be the, maybe the main teaching from this passage, and yet it hadn't stood out to me until we were going through that uh, time of worship um, through song like that. So, um, hey, in a second, uh, I'm going to invite some words from the audience and uh, from our live studio audience here. And if you're, if you're online, if you're on Facebook, you can throw in um, your thoughts as well. And, uh, and so it's going to be a lesson, like lessons from dads. So here, here's what I would ask, like when I do that, if you've got like a, a favorite saying that your dad said um, or, or a favorite teaching that your dad said or something like that, you can throw that out. We want to keep it short, so like a sentence, not, not like the typical dad lecture goes, like a, just a, I mean, so think of it this way, when you were a teenager and your dad would talk for 45 minutes, just shout out the part you heard, so that one or two sentences that you actually heard in that um, and then, obviously, not all of us um, had the type of dads that, you know, we would, we would hope, and so keep it clean and positive um, as well. So, uh, so lesson, lessons from that's going to come in a few minutes, and so just be thinking about, is there a main lesson that kind of comes from dad like that? Um, okay, so in Daniel chapter 4, uh, verse 19, so if you remember, um, Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about last week, Nebuchadnezzar has had yet another dream, and he is troubled by it. And he gets his advisors, and for some reason unknown to us, he decides to go through the process of giving all the other advisors a shot at it first. Um, why he bothers, I have no idea, um, except that he, my guess is that he didn't want to hear what the interpretation of this dream was. Um, and so he was stalling and hoping somebody would give him the answer that he wanted rather than the answer he suspected. So finally, when everyone else fails, he calls in Daniel, and he tells the dream. And at the end of the dream, we get to verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Just this verse alone brings such richness to these two men. There's so much here. I'm telling you, I, I always thought theology training would be what would convince me of the truth of Scripture. It does. But it is my psychology training, really, that teaches me the truth of Scripture so often because this is so real. This, this happened 2,600 years ago, and you can just tell. This is exactly how this would go. In some of the older translations, by the way, it says that Daniel stood for an hour. Which, that's not in the text, does not indicate that. That was a kind of interpretational decision, some of the older translations. And yet, it probably captures the mood. This isn't Daniel sits there for 30 seconds, not sure what to say. It is time stretched past. And more time. And way past awkward. And into and, and what's interesting to me is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't interrupt him. 
maybe for minutes and even hours or, or however long this continues, he's dismayed. He doesn't know what to say. Now, unlike most of the rest of us, Daniel is wise enough that when he doesn't know what to say, he doesn't say anything. Um, when, when most of us face that, we, in those moments, we fail at this test, typically, but he just sits there. And after an extended period of time, so here's, what, here's what's wild. I think we're supposed to imagine stunned silence because the minute he hears the dream, Daniel knows exactly what it means. And he is crushed by the consequence of this dream. He's stunned by it. Just in silence. I, I imagine he had to sit down if he wasn't. Nebuchadnezzar was king for a total of about 43 years. Daniel has been here for almost all of that so far. We don't know exactly where this is in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but we could probably assume that Daniel has worked toe-to-toe, shoulder-to-shoulder sometimes, toe-to-toe other times with Nebuchadnezzar now for at least 30 years. How well does he know him? The, The level of respect that has clearly come into existence between these two men, and he just heard stunning news from Nebuchadnezzar. You might have an example of this. This is when the spouse comes in and tells you they're done. They're leaving you. When, when the doctor tells you you have cancer. When, or or your, a loved one does. When you find out that the company you've worked for is going out of business. I, I don't know that it's those moments in life that after my whole life is about to change and someone who I love, their whole life is about to change. Where do you file that? And that's what we're seeing right now with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. That Daniel's going, where do I put this? Where do I file what I've just realized is going to happen? You can't wrap your brain around it. And Nebuchadnezzar sits and sits, just the two of them, for a long time. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar speaks, and essentially, in modern English, he says, it's okay. I think Nebuchadnezzar suspects already what this dream means. How could he not? He's a brilliant man. This dream is not that subtle. It's not that well hidden. And Nebuchadnezzar has to at least understand what it means for him, and he says, it's okay, you can tell me. I need to hear it from you. So Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord... May the dream be for those who hate you, it's an inter- and its interpretation for your enemies. I think at this stage, Daniel really appreciates Nebuchadnezzar. He's come to respect him as a leader, maybe as a friend, and he knows what this means. And this is, the, this is that stage of grief denial. I really wish this wasn't about you. In fact, this is so bad, Nebuchadnezzar, that I wish this dream was about the people who hate you. I wish this dream was about your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown, and it reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Okay, so I, gotta, I know I've already camped here. John camped here for a second. I camped here for half of last week's sermon. And yet, indulge me. This is still so cool. This picture is still so cool. It continues to grow on me how cool this imagery is. Here we have this image of the tree. And what's so sad is 
Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar this through tears. This is the most amazing compliment to be paid to this man. So I talked about how last week, how you know, we picture this a giant oak tree or, or, even, or a pine tree or something. And in that part of the world, because neither which have produced fruit. But, but so if you picture in that part of the world, probably what was being talked about was a fig tree. And figs can get pretty big and impressive. I have a few pictures. So there's a, uh, this, was, this was a local news report. You could totally tell, right? Agnes and her fig tree. Um, it, was the, it was the lead story of the day, I'm sure. But check, check out that fig tree. That's a giant fig tree, right? So keep going. They get big around the world. The middle, fig trees in the Middle East can become huge. And we know Nebuchadnezzar brought trees from all over the world to, to Babylon. So even the idea of fig trees that were bigger than you would imagine, even wrap your brains around. And fig trees, some of the fig trees, the ones that grow in, in more um, desert regions, will have longer branches, and they even grow roots that are called prop roots because they prop up these branches that spread out like this. How cool is that? I mean, yes, that's like, a, that's like a house. I mean, you could like it wouldn't be hard to turn that into. You start picturing this imagery, and this is one that's, that, that kind of grows further east typically than Israel. But again, it would not be surprising if Nebuchadnezzar had these. There's a famous one, a banyan tree you can go visit. That's, that's, those are fig trees. This whole area. And I, I think it's very likely that when you describe a giant tree that reaches to the heavens and its branches spread in every direction, this is the imagery, and could there be a better compliment for a dad? As you think through this imagery, that the idea of someone who reaches out past it, like Nebuchadnezzar, reaching out past it, his kingdom has expanded to this degree, it's, it's so heartbreaking that this isn't the end of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, you had this beautiful dream about the fact that you're just a stud, man. I mean, you are awesome. You're a world changer. You're an influencer. And I don't mean just because you post on Pinterest. I mean you're an actual world changer. The entire future of humanity will be radically different because you existed. Two and a half millennia from now, some dude in a country you've never heard of will be talking about you from a stage. Who gets that, right? This is, this is a nutty, this, this picture of this guy, and yet that's where we are. Now, so I do want to take a second. This seemed like a good moment to say, though you may not be able to name your great-grandfather. Many people can't. You may not be able to name his dad especially. But there are probably lessons in your family that have tracked down through the generations to you, good or bad. We're going to talk more about this. I'm going to bring this together here in a minute. What are some of the lessons from dad? The right way is usually the hardest way. There you go. <laughs> Life's not fair. I like your dad. That's my son who said that. <laughs> Good? Do things right the first time. <laughs> Shut the gate before the cows get out. Yes. Okay. You be, don't be like everybody else. Good, yeah, you be you. What else? Okay, experience is what you get after the first time you need it. I would have to work that one out. So that's a, 
My dad would say experience is a harsh mistress, but some fools will learn with no other. I don't know who he was talking about. Yeah. Okay. So someone who puts, a man who puts everybody else ahead of himself. Good, yeah. What else? Other lessons? It's okay to say you're sorry. That is not a common lesson from dads. That's, that's powerful and very wise. Super wise. What else? That's right. Measure twice, cut once. Yes. That's exactly right. Yes. It's what you learn after you know it all that's important. Wow. That'll make you work. It's better to be hated for the truth than loved for a lie. We'll cross that bridge and we get there. That's right. There's the way I say it. We'll jump off that bridge once we burn it. Right? That's the, that's the way I tell my kids. Good. Any others? Say that one again. Focus on your responsibilities, not your rights. Tagline, you have no rights. There you go. Good. Yes? Larry? Okay, if you see something need done, get started. Excellent. There's others we hear sometimes that are good, and we hear good ones, we hear bad ones. Many of us, in fact, most of us, um, probably including my children, we carry a dad curse as well, something harsh that dad said to us that sticks in our brains. We hear these positive messages that, that we hear from hopefully from dads that stick in our brains. Um, these, are, these are important things that, that we hear and that stick with us. Sometimes we're shocked when we learn um, like, for example, my, my dad and I were both raised under the, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well, um, which was always confusing to me because I reversed that quote and was like, well, something, if I can do it well, of course I should do it, right? That's, that's not a hard decision. The tough decision is, should I do it if I can't do it well? Um, and I think it's Chesterton who said, I don't know if Chris Sherrod's in here, he, he and I both discovered this. Is that right? It's Chesterton who said, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Yeah, something like that. And so, we, or, or don't put off till tomorrow what you could do today. Anybody grew up with that one? Anybody know the original quote? The actual original quote? Do not put off till tomorrow what you could enjoy today. The actual original quote, I think it's from Longfellow. Um, and so, but that's, that's a very different quote, isn't it? By the way, that's a, wait, that's not the right application. So we, we hear these, this impact for us to understand, for those of us who are dads or who have dads, and that means everybody, um, to recognize the words we use are very powerful. The way we engage are very powerful. Our influence has reached sometimes much greater than we realize. And, and our, the truth that we share or the lies that we share often spread out into other people's lives. And this is one of those really cool things about being a dad. Um, and, and we talked about, we'll talk more about how being a dad. Um, is largely often about influence, but what we do with that influence. So you've heard me say before, the, the fundamental definition of being a father is someone who ex, uh, exhibits or exemplifies the paternal traits of God. Like a mother is someone who exemplifies the maternal traits of God. The degree to which you do that, you're a good father. To degree, the degree to which you fail at that, you're a poor one. Um, 
And, and that's also people who, though we have one biological father, at least I think they haven't changed that. I know that there is a, they're trying very hard to figure out how to take women out of the reproduction process and men out of the reproduction process. And I don't think they've accomplished it yet. I was trying to check it real quick. My computer ran out of battery. But the, um, uh, that's the, uh, that idea is certainly on the horizon, and yet I don't think it's been accomplished yet. That's, we have those. We have a biological. And, and many of us, hopefully, like in my case, our biological father was a good father and that he exemplified many of the paternal traits of God. And I hope I do the same. And my sons do the same. We also have people in our lives who are spiritual fathers. We can have adoptive fathers. We can have um, uh, foster fathers and, and, and people who go and work in camps like when, at the Royal Family Kids Camp and track of stuff that we try to do every year. And when we do, when, when, listen, part of why we do what we do in the children's building with we, where we are the ones who raise up these next generation of Christians in the children's building is because we are speaking the truth of God through our actions and our words into the lives of the next generation. We are being spiritual fathers and mothers to these children because I hope I'm pretty good at it, but I can't fill in all of that. In fact, I will tell you, very, very often really good dads are the dads who are trying really, really hard to bring other dads into their children's lives because they recognize this. Like, no, no, you, you do that. No, you help with that. No, I don't know anything about this. And you can imagine, I use the example all the time of when Mark became really interested in suits. I mean, I, I got nothing to teach the boy when it comes to dressing up. Like, I, got, I own a suit. You've all seen it. If you've, if you've ever been to a funeral or a wedding that I'm doing, you've seen it. It's the one. Uh, I sometimes switch out the tie, but that's kind of it. So he was, he, Mark probably owned, still owns probably three or four more suits than I do, but so I had to find other men who could teach him about that stuff because I don't have that. I don't know what that, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty of things I can't teach and other men can. That's part of being a dad too as well. But this idea of influence, so I'm, I'm using that imagery today on Father's Day to help us understand this application. But I, I want to go back to Nebuchadnezzar now and, and help you understand fully what's being described here. So you have, um, in hist- in historians at some point began to coin the term fertile crescent. The fertile crescent is the part of the world where civilization really was being built and, and growing quickly. Now, there was some stuff far in the far east, but, but you start having things developed in this area um, of the fertile crescent Thousands of years in some cases before others. Uh, This is the cradle of civilization. It was the birthplace of agriculture, urbanization, writing, trade, science, history, organized religion. It was first populated at maybe as much as 10,000 years before Christ. Domestication of animals started here. Wild grains started here as as being cultivated, not just picked. Um... By 4500 BCE, sheep were being cultivated here. The, the, so many of the things that we think are normal, wheels, fences, pottery, all were happening in this region first. Um, it's, it's fascinating to read about uh, what's, what's going on and relative. When I teach through church history, I often go way, way, way back and work my way up to the church. And, and it's wild to see in the Fertile Crescent, the things that are coming from the Fertile Crescent are typically, you have, you have, you're in the Iron Age in the Fertile Crescent, and in the rest of the world, you're in the Stone Age. You have philosophy being taught in these regions or spreading from these regions, 
And in the rest of the world, there's still hunter-gatherers who do not have a wheel yet. And it's just there's something about the, the, the extraordinary nature of this, this place's ability to grow food and provide security and safety that, that causes so much there. This is really where civilization began in so many ways. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom owned all of that. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his empire covered all of that and in every direction around and so much of the world's technology today, the world's philosophy today, the world's come from this. Now there's an ugly side to this and that's part of why that through all of Scripture you're going to see the city of Babylon representing the, the, the world rather than God's kingdom. This is where you see man at his or her best, which typically ends up being pretty ugly. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing here. And we're seeing that expressed in, the, in an individual human being, this tree spreading all over the world, reaching to the heavens, named Nebuchadnezzar. This is such a positive statement about him, it's hard to imagine what could possibly follow it. But Daniel clarifies there's more to the story. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, this is still Daniel speaking and explaining the dream. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Here's what's, here's what's interesting to me. When, when, you, when you go back, and so often if you're raised in church, you don't get to come at passages like this. We don't get to because we've been raised with their interpretation from day one. And so but you, if you could try to put your brain back and you're going apocryphal imagery, this, this, this grand imagery, what could it possibly mean? What could possibly be going on here? When you're trying to, to take an image out of an apocryphal or even prophetic concept, you go, okay, what is this an imagery of? What is this real life thing meant to teach me? So we have these grand pictures. We're going to run into the second half of Daniel. We're going to run into these crazy monsters and creatures and animals and images. And we've got to go, well, this means this. And we think maybe it means that. And if you, like most people, as it's sometime early in your Christian faith, you read Revelation and we're like, what is this? And, and this is, things are being revealed to you, and you're going, this, this makes no sense, I don't get... And so, so often we have to wrestle with, what do we do with these fantastic beasts? What do they mean? Are they... I mean, is this going to happen like this? Does it look like this? And so you, you end up with this challenge of going, do I over-interpret, meaning I pull out today's newspapers, and I go, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make what the Bible says fit my experience. That's over-interpreting. Or do I underinterpret and go, no, 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 it's, it's exactly like it describes it. It's going to be exactly like that. And, and we wrestle with it. And the problem is, sometimes it's this, sometimes it's this, and most of the time it's somewhere in between. Some of you guys are old enough to remember Hal Lindsey. You remember old Hal Lindsey? Bless his heart, right? As he went through the book of Revelation, and he would see these, these images and read these images about you know, these, these scorpion monster creatures that fly around and they've got stingers and they've got the face of a human and a, the hair of a woman. And he goes, obviously, got a picture? He goes, obviously, that's an Apache helicopter. That's probably an example of over-interpreting. I'm, I'm not, I mean, 
scorpion, woman's face, woman's hair, human face, helmet. I mean, okay, I, I mean, kind of, sort. I mean, I don't. Again, I'm not mocking him because he's not got creativity with that, and he's not trying to fit that. But probably at some point, when you're going, okay, there's a giant horse that has a tail like a snake and a face like a lion, and it breathes fire. And 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 Hal thought it was a uh, probably an M1 Abrams tank. Again, a horse with a lion's head that breathes fire has a tail with a snake that bites. I mean, okay, probably you're over-interpreting, but at the same time, careful, don't under-interpret, don't say like, well, it, it must just literally be a scorpion slash uh, human slash helmeted slash grasshopper slash thing that's going to fly around. That's literally going to look like that. I had a picture of it and, uh, and sent it to the team, and they were like, that's probably too creepy to put up on the screen, honestly. Um, and so, and so, but you, so we listen. This is always our struggle. It is always our do we or do we overinterpret? Do we underinterpret? What do we do with that? And how do we wrestle through it? And and we're always supposed to try to figure out how to apply it. And yet, it's a challenge. Uh, again, I, blessings. I I uh, I never mean to mock another faithful believer. He, there's brilliant stuff that Hal Lindsey has done, and it's great material. I just think he probably overinterpreted a little bit there. In this case. We're gifted with, an interp- with a correct interpretation. Enjoy this. We're not going to get this a lot in Daniel. Here we not only get the dream and we get the vision, but now we get the message. Daniel's going to interpret it for us. And here's what's wild. This is probably the part of the dream that is tough to interpret. Um, there's a giant tree. It covers everything. And then it gets cut down. Nebuchadnezzar had to know, it's about me and my country, probably. And Daniel's going to clarify, it's not about your country, it's just you. But so what about the fact that the stump is then going to start eating grass, and it's going to live with animals, and it's going to, that's weird. What does this possibly mean? Well, it turns out there's not a lot of interpretation to be done. What does the, in this case, you go, what does this mean? What, is, what does the do represent here? Well, do, it's, it's kind of condensation. At the grass, that's what, it's, that's what it represents here. What about living like a beast? What does that represent, Daniel? I mean, well, you're, you're going to be living like a beast. That's what that represents. What about, what about eating grass? I mean, bummer, dude, but you're going to literally eat grass. This is, there's, no, there's no deep interpretation to be done here. In this case, the literal interpretation is the correct one. What do you do with that? What do you do if you're Nebuchadnezzar? And Daniel says, hey, you just need to know, like, God is going to strike you down with madness. There's going to suddenly be a moment sometime in the near future, sir, when you, when you are insane. And you're going to think you're an animal. And this is powerful imagery throughout Scripture, the picture of the man and the beast this is very similar to the kingdom and Babylon. This picture's all through Scripture. Human beings aren't beasts. This is, this is one of the main themes of the deep Old Testament is that human beings aren't beasts. We're different. We're not just like animals. We're not like all the others. Adam couldn't find a helper among the beasts. They offered him no... I mean, even, even the ones that were good to have around still were not like him Animals are different. We can debate what's different about them, but they're different. They're not like us. We're not, we're not beasts. Beasts have, have no law. They have no morality. They have no, they have no 
intentionality in regards to these things, and we aren't like that, except guess what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? What it means to be human is about to be stripped from him. This, in the Middle Eastern world, that's what this means. You are going to no longer live as a human being. You who are, by the way, the apex human being, the number one most awesome human who has ever lived is about to spend a period of time, not one. That's, this is a, that's why Daniel sat in silence. It's not just that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought down like a giant tree. It's that he's going to be brought all the way down. He's going to be brought all the way down to no longer being, no longer being king, you wish. No longer being human. That's what's coming for his friend. Enjoy it. Here's the interpretation. This is the interpretation, O king, verse 24, is the decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the King that you will be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You'll be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. This is not a decree of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. This is not a decree of the watchers. It's not a decree of the holy ones. This is a decree of the Most High God. The God above the other gods has made a decree. It's about you. You should feel special. I mean, bad news. It's not a good decree about you. And here's what it is. There's a sense in which things are right and true they're an analogy of the real at the same time. These are both going on simultaneously, and Nebuchadnezzar is getting to be the living parable of man versus God. Man is amazing. Human beings are amazing. Our power is amazing. What, what are the limits of what mankind can do? We will probably never know. When do we finally attain something? I mean, there has to be them. You can't run the one-second mile. But how fast can we run a mile? Maybe we'll never know. There always seems to be somebody able to do it faster, doesn't there? I mean, if you break down that last second into tinier, tinier pieces at least. It always seems like, well, this is not possible, and then we do it. Well, that's not possible, then we do it. We were just talking with my folks last night about, um, about going to you know, Disney World earlier this year. I'm going, how do you, that's not possible. There are things that they do that you go, say, that's, that's magic. Like, that's not possible. Humans can't do that kind of thing. This happens all the time. Scientific discoveries and breakthroughs all the time. It's just not possible. There's a sense in which things are right and true here, and there's a metaphor. There's the reality of so many things which are cosmic and heavenly. The reality is there. The analogy is here. The reality is there. The analogy is here. I'm going to skip those three verses for time, uh, those three passages for time. This is the most high God, and Nebuchadnezzar is the standard of man. The ultimate man. And yet, there is a most high God who rules. You think you rule Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, you do. But there's a rule that transcends yours. There's a rule that's beyond yours. There's an influence that allows yours. We're amazing creatures. Medicine, technology, psychology, political science, economy, all of that kind of stuff. Man was given dominion over the world. Man was not given dominion over God. And so what God does periodically, apparently, is express His dominion. To confess this is to agree. 
This is not mine. It's yours. By the way, this is something that I try to do regularly in my own life, is get, the, get alone with God, just me, just God, and go through the things in my life and say, this thing that I love is yours, not mine. This, is, this wife is yours, not mine. These kids are yours, not mine. These friends are yours, not mine. This church is yours, not mine. This business is yours, not mine. He doesn't need to be reminded of that. I need to confess the truth of it regularly, these relationships. Now, this is the final thing that stood out to me today while we were singing as I read through this last section. It was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. I'm going to come back to that section and teach a little bit more about that section next week. But notice, there's a purpose to this. This isn't just some random, I'm going to slap you down just to teach you a lesson. It is something's going to happen so that you can truly learn it at the depths of the core of who you are. It will be confirmed that the heavens, when you are able to confess that the heavens rule, not you, when you can acknowledge that it is God who reigns, not you, that this is His, not yours, it'll be over. That is exactly what we're going to see, by the way, which must have been an incredible thing. We'll talk about that one next week. This idea, the language here is that what Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to do is rebel against his rebellion. He's going to have to throw off his sin. He's going to have to declare war against his pride. He's going to have to betray his sin with righteousness. It's almost like cheating on your sin. That's the other side. You're on the other side. This is amazing that that Daniel tells him then, this is how my God works. You need to know something about my God who's bringing this to you. You don't know him that well, Neb. I do. Here's how he works. If you will confess, if you'll repent, if you'll change, he may not make this happen. He certainly will stall it. Can you imagine all the stories in Scripture that Daniel has to be reaching out for in his brain? He doesn't want his friend to be destroyed like this. He's like, listen, I'm telling you, just, a, just like a hundred years ago, <coughs> the Assyri- God sent one of his prophets to the Assyrians because he was going to destroy them like he just said he's going to destroy you, so he sent one of his prophets. And that prophet didn't want to go. And God sent God had that prophet swallowed up by a great fish and spit out on the shore so that he could go warn the Assyrians, I'm about to wipe you out. I'm about to do it. And, and, or to quote Dad Day, like, don't make me come back there. Right? So he says, oh, no. And, and, and by the way, that prophet didn't even want to warn these people because he wanted them dead, and, but he warned them and they repented and God didn't wipe them out. Nebuchadnezzar, that's the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar, the story of my people is time after time after time after time of us screaming at God and rebelling against God and running from God and hating God and cursing God. And then he brings us back and he, he stomps us down and he brings us back and he chastises us and he brings us back and he... Teaches us a lesson and he brings us back and he brings us back and he brings us back and he brings us back. That's this God. And I'm telling you, I know this wasn't in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. But if if you will repent and if you will confess and if you will change, it may not happen at all. And it'll at least be forestalled. Please, I'm begging you. 
And by the way, we're going to see that it's a year before it happens. Which I think indicates that Nebuchadnezzar listened. But you know what? Nebuchadnezzar is still one of us. Right? We just don't learn things well. We don't learn these lessons very well. Here's, here's the step that struck me. And I want to end on this thought today because this is perfect for Father's Day. The part that's interpreted last. This band that goes around the stump. This, this anchor thing, this protective encasement that goes around the stump is explained. Daniel explains why. God has not forsaken you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's just holding, the, he's going to hold your kingdom in place for you so that when you learn the lesson, he will restore you. He will confirm you. I don't know what your dad was like. Some of us have dads who practiced that, just helping us learn that when we fail and then we are restored, and we rebel and we're restored, and we wander off to a foreign country, and we come back wanting to be our dad's servant, but we're restored fully to what it means to be sons and daughters, because you, once you are a son or a daughter, you can never not be a son or a daughter. This is the way this works. I did not even see in this that the main message in this entire thing about Nebuchadnezzar is, I'm going to break your pride. But the main thing, the message in all of this about God is that I will still restore you. I'm going to take this pride and I'm going to break it out of you. I'm going to sweat it out of you. You're going to chew grass until you get this pride out of you. And when it's gone... And when you realize it, this is just the prodigal son story told through Nebuchadnezzar. And when you realize it and you look up and you go, oh, wow, you know what? I think maybe you're in charge. Then I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to restore you. I don't know where you are in this process that we do. We're like sheep. We're dumb that way. We wander off because sheep are dumb. And then the shepherd goes and finds them and he brings them back. And then they wander off. And the shepherd goes and finds them. It's exhausting. If you have children, we all know what this is like. They wander off and we bring them back. And this is, this is the picture. And what struck me again for the first time that I've never noticed until the songs we were singing this morning is that the message about who God is in this is God is the one who humbles and restores. I was pretty pumped about that. That's where we are, and that's who we are with Him. So I want to close in prayer. Isaiah 1 is often referenced um, in this passage when we talk about different things in this passage, Isaiah 1. So I've turned Isaiah 1, a couple of verses in Isaiah 1, into a prayer that I want to pray over us this morning. Because I want you to notice this pattern of us wandering and Him restoring is going to continue until we die. But here's what's cool. The pattern of us wandering and Him restoring ends with Him restoring. That's where the pattern ends. We wander and He restores and we wander and He restores. As screw tape letters, we die and we die and we die and then we're through. And then He restores the last time forever. That's the actual picture. We're His sons and daughters, not His slaves. He brings us back because we're his sons and daughters. And then eventually, someday, he comes back and gets us so that where Jesus comes back, our brother in the faith comes back to get us so that where we are, where he is, we can also be there with the Father. That's where we belong. 
it just is amazing to me. The idea of me when I fall and when God disciplines me, he always wraps the stump in bronze and iron so that when I finally catch on again, there's a new place to grow. Let me pray for Isaiah. Lord, we confess, we wash ourselves in confessing our pride. Help us to walk away in the purity that only being washed by your Son can create for us. We deny the evil deeds in our midst. We deny the evil deeds in our lives. Empower us through your Spirit to seek to cease our evil. We're committed to learn to do good. We long to seek justice. We commit to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause. We're here to reason together with you, O Lord. Our sins are like scarlet. Because of you, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. As the great Father, you solve these issues, and when you solve something, it stays solved, of course. Fathers can seem to fix anything when you're a child. We have a problem, and you have fixed it. As a good Father, you never abandon us. You never forsake us. You never leave us. Your reality is not dependent upon our delusion or our error or our mistakes or our doubt or our disbelief. Thank you that as a good father, you give freedom so that we are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And we have been set free by the work of your son. We're free indeed. Amen.